0: Welcome to episode 14 in the Kips Personal Trainer Application Podcast. My name is Tyler Valencia, and I'm the president of Kips and Kettleball Concepts. Today, we have a great topic that every fitness professional can utilize immediately after. That is circuit training. This episode's guest is Dr. Tony Nunez, who is an assistant professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He's a presenter on the Fitness Speaking Tour and has been in the fitness industry for 10 years. In this episode, we dive into current recommendations for circuit training, differences in the application of circuit training, and the future of circuit training research. Let's jump into the episode. What are some of the common misconceptions you've seen slash heard when it comes to circuit training?
1: Probably one of the biggest is that you can't increase muscle size with circuit training. Mm-hmm. Um, circuit training is pretty much viewed as like a muscular endurance type activity. Yeah, um, That's really going to help build muscular endurance and cardiorespiratory endurance, which is true. Um, research shows that both of those things do occur when you, um, engage in, uh, in circuit weight training for, uh, long durations, um, meaning like an actual training, eight weeks, 12 weeks. Um, but there are other studies that show if you have the resistance high enough during the circuits that you can still increase not only strength, but size. Um, and then a lot of the exercise physiology research more recently shows that. If you're going to failure, you're you're gonna elicit or you're gonna have a response of, of hypertrophy mm-hmm. or increase in size. So so as long as you're following that kind of guideline, you can still see different types of results with circuit training.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, I think when I first thought or even was told about circuit training, it was being an introduction into personal training. And coming into a gym setting and basically your, my fitness manager said, oh, you could set up this circuit. It's this a great way to attract clients. But really, I feel like there's still not enough information out there for trainers to be able to utilize this information. I think it's a great way to get a quality workout in with a client, but also a great way to give them several different, or introduce them to several exercises. Wouldn't you agree with that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's it's very time efficient. Right. So exactly. if you're if you're working with a client and I know a lot of um, personal training um, programs have moved to 30 30 minute, Right. It mm-hmm. used to be the traditional 60 minute training session. Now, some people pay for 30 minutes. Well, if you only have 30 minutes to get a workout in, you're you're going to want to be as time efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, implementing a circuit based program is probably a really good way of doing that. Um, and it really depends on what population you're trying to look at. So yeah. with with circuit training and, say, athletic performance, circuit training traditionally has been something that they do in the off-season as kind of something to keep them active and engaged. Um, and they might even build it into in-season training because it's not as stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it never was traditionally used in the preseason program, which is where you're trying to build strength and power. Um, so if you're looking at that population maybe it'd be better to do something more traditional during the preseason um but for general population you know just your um your gung-ho um people working out at 24-hour fitness or something you know like it's it's a great way of getting them started and just introducing them to a different way of just your traditional one exercise four sets and move on you know Mm -hmm. Um, because that tends to be pretty monotonous and pretty boring yeah. For most general population, and they don't uh, they don't really adhere to it as much. You know, with the whole idea of exercise adherence is that people are going to come back and continue to do it. Yeah. Um. And and you really want that if you're trying to improve uh, overall health and wellness.
0: Yeah, yeah. Two things popped up in my head with that last part right there. Well, one, very good points in terms of programming depending on what population you're working with, athletes, and how you can structure this into a whole year's worth of training with your client if, it, if they are an athlete. But second, I think going into what's interesting for the client, I think that's something that we often forget as a personal trainer or fitness instructor. There's this level of give and take, giving them stuff that they want to do or they that will keep them entertained because if you don't have anybody to train, you're not going to be a personal trainer. You're most likely to be on your way out of the industry. So keeping them entertained is such a a crucial part of personal training. And if you just gave them your favorite ones all the, all the time, they might be great exercises. They might be very foundational exercises, squats, some type of pull press, um, some type of hip hinge, but if they don't really like them, if they're not entertained, you know, they might move on to a different trainer.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, keeping, the client in mind is a big part of adhere, getting clients to adhere to your programs. Um, while we know based on research that doing anything is going to help improve your health and wellness, right? Now, there are other ways or other things to take into consideration when you're trying to say improve it at the best or um, let's see, what's the better word of saying that? Um, if you're trying to create a program that's going to be uh most optimal right mm. even if it's most optimal for these five people it may not um lead to any adherence for another five people meaning that they're going to drop out yeah. and if they drop out then it's all for none right even if your program was the most sound scientifically if it's not getting people to stick with it then there's no point of even trying to implement it, right yeah. so there's this whole idea of translational research and making sure that it actually translates to the populations that we're trying to get to do it
0: yeah yeah so. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Nunez that has done some extensive research in circuit training. And I think one of the areas that we got to kind of go back to is the programming, implementing a circuit. I think that by now, personal trainers, group instructors should know that individualization is the key, making sure that you're not just handing the same template out to each client and saying, hey, go jump on this circuit. They will have a different load. Their fitness level might be in a different place. What are some of those physiological characteristics that you would recommend to a personal trainer that they make sure they check off or make sure that they're looking for?
1: So when when looking at all of the research and seeing what the typical circuit weight training program looks like, um, recommendations over the last 40 years have basically come down to a few different principles. And that is that circuits should be performed for anywhere for two to four sets. So as you go through it are two to four rounds, depending on what terminology you like to mm-hmm. use. So as you go around your circuit, you should do it at least somewhere between two to four times. Um, usually it should have somewhere between eight to 20 repetitions for your exercises mm-hmm. or anywhere from 15 to 45 seconds. If you're using a time-based, right? So a lot of people like to do a time-based circuit where You stick with your exercise for say 30 seconds and you just get in as many repetitions as you can in those 30 seconds so 8 to 20 tends to fall between the times of 15 to 45 seconds is usually what we see um and then uh your rest period between exercises usually somewhere between 15 to 60 seconds between exercises and then you can do another 60 seconds between rounds is usually what they have um and really that 15 seconds is a transition period right so as i stop squatting and let's say I'm moving on to my push up exercise, it usually takes me about 15 seconds to kind of decompress, walk over to the station, and then begin the next exercise.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and then if you're using actual external loads with your circuit training, which would be circuit weight training, um, then usually the recommendation is somewhere between 40 and 60% of the person's 1RM. Um, not too many people actually know what their one RM is, right? So mm-hmm. not too many people actually do one RM testing in the gym, but usually that's the equivalent of like an RPE. If you're using the six to 20 scale of an RPE somewhere between, you know, 12 and 14 or 12 and 15 of an RPE six to 20 scale. Or if you're looking at uh, one to 10, usually it falls somewhere between like a five and a six. Okay. Um, so you, so those tend to be, um, the recommendations for circuit training. But like I said, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, if your goal isn't, and that and that's really for health and wellness, right? So yeah. you're trying to improve cardio respiratory endurance, and you're trying to improve muscular fitness, just mm-hmm. general muscular fitness, no real goal of increasing strength or size or increasing endurance. It's just general overall uh, mobility and um, certain movements. So those tend to be those markers, But if you're trying to build strength, then you really have to gear your guidelines towards strength. Or if you're trying to build hypertrophy, you need to gear your guidelines towards hypertrophy.
0: Mm-hmm. Good stuff right there. Really good recommendations. And something that um, popped up into my head was about diminishing returns. I know that common questions a client might have if you're doing a circuit with them and if they are really motivated or they are at that point we are like, okay, I really need to make a change in my life. They might come up and ask a personal trainer. Hey, like can I do a, another round after we're done. If they only have a, a 30 minute session or if they're, even if it is an hour session, they might come and ask, can I do another round of that circuit? Will that have any benefit? Do, have you seen anything in research that are talking about diminishing returns or even what would your recommendation be for that? Um. I think
1: it would really come down to how many days per week the client's exercising. Mm-hmm. And if that tends to be, um, uh, something that's continuing to occur, cause you wouldn't want them to overdo it. Right. Yeah. Now yeah. the, the idea of overtraining really comes from the principle of under recovery. Mm-hmm. So if a client isn't taking enough time to recover and really get their, their, um, passive rest, uh, getting the proper nutrition in and all that stuff, then then you would want to pay more attention to uh, their questions on, can I do more? Can I do more, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because you, you don't want it to lead to overuse, injury, and overtraining, right? Yep. So um, there certainly are uh, diminishing returns. Um, it just, it, it does take quite a bit to get there, mm-hmm. uh, unless the person is just really malnourished and really not taking care of themselves in terms of sleep and, and rest and recovery. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's something that you want to think about, um, on a client to client basis and and really understand your client more and what their goal is, what their program. Um, so, uh, if they do ask, just kind of take those things into consideration. Maybe, maybe you feel they can do another round and you decide, you know what, lighten up the load a little bit, do one more round. But after that, just, just try to get in some, some stretching and recovery so that you, you don't, uh, injure yourself during the program. Good and then one thing that I, that I forgot to mention was exercise selection during your circuit, right? So if you are implementing all the appropriate exercises, meaning that you're hitting all the major muscle groups, um, and you're doing so in a fashion that you're not seeing, um, overuse from one exercise to the next, then you should be able to, to create a program where they might feel like they can do another round just because they're not really getting that um, fatigue that they would experience if they're doing multiple sets of the same exercise.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that that was such a good point that depending on the client and then also their recovery strategy, those are often things that building those in with a new client or even, I would even say the majority of individuals that you will see in a personal training setting, they have no idea. I mean, you as a personal trainer, we often see a client one to three times a week for one hour. So three hours total in in a week, the the other times, what are they doing? What are they used to? What do they know? Are they implementing any type of stretching outside? Are they they incorporating any type of sleep strategy? I mean, what does their diet look like? These are all things that often as a personal trainer, you have to work these in with them and almost in a similar fashion to personal training or strength training that you're gradually increasing these types of things, bringing one thing at a time, making sure that they're adhering to them. Just because if you just throw everything at them, I'm going to throw everything at you, do all your extra work. There's a chance that might they might not do any of it or it might just be overwhelming for them. I, mean, I think that's something that we've kind of touched on is that every client is kind of it, or they are different. And so having a individualized approach to all these things, it's something that you got to uncover with each client, making sure that you're not implementing the same things with each each client because they might have different goals. They might have different backgrounds and exercise. So I think that taking that individualized approach, as you've mentioned, is such a crucial item right here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, when you think about, Like people who just like to burn themselves out during a workout, right? They just, they want to take it so hard that they, they don't want to do anything at the end of the day because they work so hard during their workout. Well, Mm -hmm. there's definitely some disadvantages to that that we've seen in the research. People who tend to do that tend to be less active throughout the day after the workout, right? So Mm -hmm. they tend to lounge a little bit more. And really, what is that doing for you? It's, It's decreasing your caloric expenditure just from your leisure time, physical activity, Um, So it takes away from the overall calorie burn for the week. And when you think about it, if you're only working out three days a week for one hour a day, that's three hours in a week. And we all know that that's not a lot of time, right? In the grand scheme of things. So really where does a majority of the caloric expenditure come from, from the activities that you do during your leisure time? So are you spending a lot of time sitting on the couch after you work out? Or do you make it a point to, to walk a little bit more and be on your feet a little bit more because that's really going to lead to the body weight changes that you want to see from a program if that is uh, indeed your goal is to improve your body composition, right? So what you see is people will come back and be like, yeah, I've been doing this program three days a week, an hour each program, and I've been kicking my own butt the whole time, and I can't see any results. I haven't lost any weight. I haven't done this. And what you actually start to notice if you look at activity trackers, um, what the research has shown is that, Activity tracker data showed that these people tend to be more sedentary after they do their workouts mm. um which just takes away from from their overall caloric expenditure for the week and that's going to be very detrimental to their ability to lose weight over time
0: very good points very good points i think that that also goes along those lines of you know creating a lifestyle um a, a more positive life, lifestyle and i think that that point right there builds right into that i like what you said about if, they, if there are people and what you pointed out with research that are just burning themselves out, just all about high intensity. And what are they doing when they go home? Just on the couch, surfing, tur- channel surfing. So, really good information there. And um, so, a little information on how this podcast came together, this episode right here, because I think it's really useful. And um, something that even caught my eye was that uh, Dr. Nunez created this presentation for the ACSM Health Summit. Um, around circuit training and something in there that we might not even think about as a fitness professional, as a personal trainer, is how can circuit training be incorporated in a rehab setting? I thought when I saw that bullet point, I had to ask that in the podcast because that's something that many of us will just glance over or not even think about just because we typically associate some type of circuit training as high intensity or something that's fast paced. But uh, what have you uncovered in the clinical setting with uh, circuit training?
1: There's really great research out there on cardiac rehabilitation patients implementing circuit training into um, their exercise programs. And they've seen amazing results with it, Um, even in comparison to just general aerobic training. So you would think, okay, the heart's responsible for the aerobic side of things, right? It's going to get the blood pumping. Um, for the aerobic activities that are more continuous in nature. Well, with the just overall um, prescription of a circuit, since it does keep the body moving and it does engage in those different muscular fitness activities that you may not see with cardiorespiratory exercise, um, cardiac rehab patients really respond um, to circuit training style. And it doesn't have to be, like you said, that fast pace on your feet moving at high intensity at all times. I mean, when you think about a cardiac rehab patient, high intensity for them might be 40%, right? Yeah. That might be high intensity for them Very and true. their perception of how how hard that is. Um, so when you implement just these different exercises, like I said, going back to the whole exercise selection idea, making sure that you're getting in all the muscle groups, all the major muscle groups, um, and you're uh, having them do those movements properly it really does benefit not only the muscular fitness, but the cardiorespiratory fitness and just the overall function of the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you think about that, you could, you can move that into different clinical populations, whether it's diabetics, whether it's um, hypertensive individuals uh, even looking at people coming back from injury, it really just comes down to how you select your intensity, how you monitor your intensity. Um, and making sure that you stay engaged in the program, so that the person is doing everything properly, yeah. right? So, so they're going through appropriate ranges of motion. Um, they're using um, good dynamic proper, uh, good dynamic principles in terms of eccentric, concentric contractions. One big thing that um, we think about with cardiac rehab and muscular fitness is that when you do resistance training. You can see Valsalva maneuver taking place, right? So the Valsalva maneuver, which is that period between the eccentric and concentric action, where someone may hold their breath. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they do that, it really causes these crazy increases in blood pressure, and that's not going to be good for someone who is undergoing cardiac rehabilitation. You don't want to see too high of change in blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So you just have to make sure that those people aren't engaging in the Valsalva maneuver. So they're going through smooth, controlled movements as opposed to really Holding their breath and pressing for the concentric phase.
0: Yeah, good points. Really good points, and interesting stuff there for any personal trainer that is working with a, a patient or a client in that type of setting. And it really you know opens up the door for programming, in my opinion. Um, how we kind of pointed out there is we might not come to circuit training as an option just because we think that they can't handle it or it might be too much for them. But just how you pointed out their uh, percentage of exertion, you know, their 40% might be high intensity for them. That's such a good point there that uh, we kind of just, we went over, but it's such a crucial point and really taking into account their individual fitness level, really good stuff there. Um, Something that's been kind of going through my mind as we're going through this podcast is the use of different types of circuit training, or even um, and we can, of course, go through the, the popular ones, but uh, what are some of the differences in your opinion of circuit weight tr- or cir- circuit training, um, high intensity power training, or even HIT, which is right now a very popular term to use?
1: Yeah, so so circuit training originally just spoke towards um, different muscular fitness movements, you know, sequenced in a pattern where it was repeated in a cycle, right? So. High intensity power training. I actually had to look that up before, <laughs> before doing the podcast, because I have never seen that in the research. Mm-hmm. And, um, where, where I look at for like fitness professionals, I started noticing, okay, so essentially they're implementing power movements, right? So we're thinking about like rate of force development and impulse when we think about power. So how fast are you moving the weight or what type of movement are you performing to actually elicit the power?
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and the idea of power training, I mean, is, there's always a backing of high intensity. So I just thought it was interesting that they called it high intensity power training. Mm-hmm. Um, because power in and of itself is high intensity, or you would think of it as high intensity. Mm-hmm. Um but uh it, it's it's an interesting approach. I, I would say that when you think about high what what gets me um what it gets me thinking about really is is kind of a CrossFit type style workout, yep. right? High intensity power training. Yep. So that that's immediately where my mind goes. Um, and what I've learned and what I've seen in the research behind when you're implementing a kind of power program is that you don't, you want it to be high intensity, but you don't want it to be muscular endurance high intensity. Mm -hmm. Um, meaning that you don't want to be doing too many repetitions of the power movement because now you're just increasing your likelihood of injury due to overuse or due to a breakdown in, um, Exercise uh, form, right? So, proper form. Usually, as you become more fatigued, uh, form becomes diminished, and then that can lead to an injury due to that movement, where that potential may not be there if you just properly uh, implement the power training.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now, I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Fury Yetto. He's over at Kennesaw State University. He does a lot of um, research on CrossFit style workouts. They call it high intensity circuit training. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh he, if if you're interested in that type of stuff i would certainly go over and read his articles um because he comes up with a lot of information now you have to take everything with a grain of salt um because yuri is a big crossfitter himself so there's obviously some inherent bias there <laughs> but you, you but but you hope that he's you know undergoing the the normal scientific format of his mm-hmm. of his research you know and and i i know the man very well so i would say yes i trust that he's doing Uh, His due diligence with the research. Now, when you think about HIT, high intensity interval training, when I think about HIT, I think specifically about implementing high intensity bouts of aerobic style training Mm -hmm. um, with lower intensity bouts of aerobic style training. Um, But a lot more research is kind of implementing the whole idea of resistance training built into that, Mm -hmm. um, which is why you get all these different terms, right? So you get HIT, you get HIRT, which is high intensity resistance training. You get HICT, which is high intensity circuit training. So you get all these things and they're all trying to describe what is essentially a similar format where you're you're going hard for 30 seconds or so and then you're taking your break. And then you're going hard again for 30 seconds or so and you're taking your break. And how you implement the intensity during the high intensity portion and how you implement your recovery is going to change your results for your programs drastically. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and there's also HIST, I don't know if you know about that, our sprint interval training, SIT. Mm-hmm. Um, so sprint interval training is referring to intensities that are super maximal. And and what we mean by that in the research is that if we did a VO2 max test on you, let's say, we're going to throw Tyler on this treadmill and we're going to see how fast he can run when in, uh, implementing this graded exercise test. Mm-hmm. And the point at which he reaches fatigue, that's what we know is his velocity max or the point at which he reaches max speed at his VO2 max. Well, we know that Tyler can run faster than that if we ask him to sprint. Okay, so sprinting essentially is your ability to attain an intensity above what we would get in a graded exercise test on a treadmill, mm-hmm. or in a graded exercise test on a cycle ergometer. So sprint interval training has been popularized because you only have to sprint interval for like 15 seconds, 10 mm-hmm. to 15 seconds. And you can see just as much benefit as someone doing a high-intensity bout at 30 seconds or 60 seconds, right? So it, it's it's pretty incredible. Researchers are coming out with the sprint interval training, and and as we all know, I mean, you go and you look at say an Olympic sprinter, they look pretty jacked, right? They're <laughs> usually pretty jacked when you look at them, and you think to yourself, okay, is that all just from the sprinting? Well, we know it's not all from the sprinting, but there is certainly a response that comes from doing that type of training.
2: Yep.
1: Um, Another colleague of mine is doing the sprint interval training and actually seeing that you do see improvements in muscle hypertrophy from doing an aerobic type exercise for a sprint bout. So like a 10 second, 15 second bout, Mm -hmm. Um, because just the sheer amount of force application that it takes to go at those higher intensities is really going to engage the fiber types that are going to be more susceptible to hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're going to see those type of improvements, which is pretty cool.
0: Good stuff. Really fascinating stuff that you shared there. And something that um, I think it's fun to jump off of there with is the, the sprinting. And if anybody is listening here and they go on Twitter, I'll say strength coach Twitter, just in general. I'm not pointing out any specific strength coach. But if you go on there, you see a bunch of people that, oh, you, why are these people not sprinting? Sprinting, 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 sprinting. And the issue that I have with sprinting, and I'm not um, trying to discount any of the research that we were just talking about, um, but the, the chances of injury when sprinting, depending upon the individual, are so much higher. You're exerting your maximal force in a in a run, in a sprint, and depending on your client, if you think, okay, wow, this is really fascinating. This is really fascinating what Dr. Nunez is saying. And I'm going to go apply this. Make sure that your client has sprinted before or, and they, the last time they sprinted was not five years ago or when they were a child, <laughs> make sure that yeah. you build them up for it. And that has always been my issue when I see uh, strength coaches trying to um, talk about sprinting just because of, the athletes that they're working with they are so well trained that they you you can they can sprint multiple times a week and be able to replicate that over and over and that's part of their sport that's part of their training it's built into them but a lot of clients that we see they're not they have probably not sprinted in years so make make sure precautions yeah that's yeah (laughs) i had to throw that in and
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a good point. And a lot of the research, like you said, is going to be done on the start of this information is typically done on general population that are apparently healthy young adults, right? You're you're usually working with college age individuals when you're getting that type of research started. And then you kind of, once you understand that, okay, it's healthy, and it's not going to injure anybody in this population, then we can start to uh, spread out and get into those other populations that may not be um, as in depth uh, at sprinting right like you mm-hmm. said people that haven't done it maybe never did it in their life you know yeah. maybe you ask kids they never actually even sprinted in their life. Yeah. um so the implementation doesn't necessarily have to be on your two feet either right so like you don't have to be uh on a track doing wind sprints you can be on a cycle ergometer right and let's say this this person is doing a you can do a makeshift graded exercise test on a cycle ergometer um i remember i used to do that a lot Uh, when I was a personal trainer, we we wouldn't be collecting any kind of gas information or heart rate information necessarily. It was just, okay, let's gradually increase your intensity on this bike by increasing the resistance and having you maintain a certain pedal rate, right? So if I keep revolutions at, say, 70 RPM, I'm just going to gradually increase your resistance every 30 seconds. And the point at which you can no longer maintain your revolutions, well, that's going to be your peak, right? That's your that's your max point, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. And now when I have you implement that sprint training on the bike, I'm just going to go a couple of resistance points over that and have you try to go above that typical revolution point. Now, you're definitely less susceptible to injuring yourself on a cycle ergometer as you are to, say, going on and sprinting all-out effort on a track, right? So people are going to end up injuring themselves, um, usually due to the deceleration portion, not so much due to the acceleration portion. Um, and on a cycle ergometer, it tends to be, you tend to be less susceptible to entering yourself that way. And like you said, you have to build up the, the, the fitness level. Yep. Um, there has to be some base, right? And that can't be the be all end all. You really have to mix it up. So that's one good way of training, but it's not the only way of training, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one really good thing to implement in your cardiorespiratory program, say once every two weeks. But it shouldn't be three days a week. That's where the overuse injuries come from. And, and people just tend to over implement those type of programs because we know that they're so good. They're so beneficial mm-hmm. when they are implemented that it gets over implemented and people come back and they just start complaining about these little nagging injuries that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. And you realize, oh, what did I what did I do differently while I implemented the sprint interval training? And we've been doing it you know, all out for the last two or three weeks. So. Mm-hmm. That that tends to be an issue with with that type of uh, training program.
0: Yeah, I like a lot of the things that you said right there because I think it ties into almost a theme of the whole episode with mixing your usage of different modalities in. Um, how you mentioned how not just sprinting. I mean, you could use an ergometer, you could use a rower, you could use um, different types of equipment, and even thinking about your programming and how. Um, but what you have access to, are you going to be taking your client to a track or is it easier to go into the gym and utilize some of the equipment there? And how are you going to keep it interesting for them? If you're just taking them to a track and you're just having them sprint, they didn't want to invest their money in that. Or if you can mix it into a circuit and, uh, utilize it as a part of the, a part of the overall program, here's some more ideas that just opened up. Look at how much more option, how many more options you have with your programming, which I think brings me to my next question about. And I know you've already mentioned some of these um, already, but what would you say some of the the fundamental programming guidelines you would give to a personal trainer in terms of um, sets, individualizing the um, the program? What are some of those items that you would recommend for them?
1: Well, like you said, it it comes to individualizing the program. So you really want to look at the client specifically. So if you if you have a client who's just starting out, um a lot of a lot of research is showing that you can actually just implement a single set program mm. and still see results with a resistance training program. You can still see the results, assuming that you can get them to a point of volitional fatigue. So you're you're not saying that they're reaching the point where they can't sustain their proper form, but you're just saying that you know their last repetition feels pretty diminishing, right It's like, oh man, th- that was pretty tough and when you think about for just a beginner, I mean that might be twelve fourteen reps in i I don't know how many people actually try to do those traditional muscular endurance programs, but when you try to do twenty consecutive repetitions for an exercise, it's hard yeah <laughs> it doesn't matter it doesn't <laughs> matter who you are yep. that's, that's gonna be pretty tough if you're implementing it in the proper way, right so um. In terms of recommendations with sets and reps, I mean, uh, for the beginner, anywhere from one to three sets uh, is perfectly fine. If you can find uh, a good resistance where they can perform anywhere from, you know, like I said, 12 to 14 repetitions, that's great. They're still going to see the the, the added benefits and Mm -hmm. giving them, um, I know we want to implement like these really cool strategies right away because it's going to be fun. It's going to help engage them. It's going to help bring them back. But you still want to think about um, like you said, going into, like, what is the appropriate way of doing this so that I'm not going to injure the client and I'm going to get the best results. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that tends to be more of your traditional style in the beginning, because it helps them build the neural pattern, right? So mm. the movements, they may have never squatted before, or they may have never done a push-up. You put someone under a bar for bench press, and you notice that they look like a newborn deer trying to walk, right? The bar <laughs> is just moving everywhere. It's, it can't stay in one plane at all mm-hmm. so you really just want to build the neural pattern by having them repeat the movement multiple times to help build what they what they call neural drive right so where your brain is getting communication to your muscle um in a, in a fashion where that you would see proper form i mean because mm-hmm. it's going to take time to build those movements uh into the program so um i i would say that you want to have multiple days built in but it's not a necessity. If the person is just starting out, they're going to see benefits. Um, even if you just do one day of resistance training per week for a few weeks, mm-hmm. and then you slowly, but surely you start building in multiple days. Um, and then you start improving parameters around the program where you can do uh, increased amount of sets and even lower the repetitions because you're going to be able to add more weight. Right? So you, there, there's a relationship between all of those things. So if I'm going to continue to add on weight, I can't expect my clients to be able to do the same amount of repetitions because the idea is for them to get stronger and strength comes from being able to perform uh, just a small number of repetitions for a larger amount of load, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just that progress. And I think um, what we've come up with in the very beginning, so probably things that you and I learned back when we were in undergraduates, um, that stuff still holds true. Like those foundational programs still hold true. Um, it's just that we're, we're trying to find different ways to implement it so it's more enjoyable, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we get people to come back and really want to do it uh, on a regular basis. Um, but, but don't forget the foundation, right? Don't forget yeah. the foundations of, of how to program
2: yeah. and
1: what type of movements to implement. Because um, I think you mentioned it earlier was like, okay, you always want to have some version of a squat. You always want to have some version of a hip hinge, an upper body push-pull horizontally and an upper body push-pull vertically. So horizontal push-pull, you think bench press and row. Vertical push-pull, you think lat pull-down, shoulder press. Now, it doesn't have to be those exact movements, but some kind of variation of that movement, right? Mm-hmm. So that you're getting in the planes of motion and you're hitting in all the major muscle groups um, to get the most out of your program and for your client to get the most out of out of the program.
0: Good stuff. Really good stuff. Really good recommendations there. Um one more question before we get to the podcast takeaways. And since this is one of the areas that you've done research in, what is it looking right now or even what kind of research are you seeing coming out um, for the future of circuit uh, training?
1: So the future is really looking like um, the implementation of these high intensity interval training into the circuits. Mm-hmm. So we we just published a study um, earlier this year It was uh, a sequencing study on high intensity interval training within a circuit weight training program. Hmm. So we wanted to know okay, if you do all your high intensity interval training at the start of the program and go into your circuit, is that more beneficial than doing implementation of that high intensity interval training within the circuits um, or in between the circuits? Um, So we called it, you know, it was like a hit cluster program where. You did small clusters of circuits where you had three exercises um, performed in a circuit format, and then you did three hit bouts on a treadmill, and then you went back to do three new exercises in a circuit format, went back to the treadmill for three hit, and then finished it off with three more uh, new resistance training exercises in a circuit format, and that was the program. Hmm. And that was compared to the same amount of high-intensity interval training in the beginning and then the same number of exercises, nine exercises performed. For three rounds so we equated everything everything was matched in terms of time and loading um, repetitions time under tension all that stuff was matched and we just wanted to see does the sequence make a difference right how we implement the hit does it change anything um yeah and and it really didn't change that much what we saw was that energy expenditure actually tended to be higher when people did all the hit in the beginning and then did the circuit for three rounds, nine exercise circuit for three rounds, Mm -hmm. compared to implementing the hit between the three exercise circuits. Um, And what we saw was that it created more of an anaerobic effect, right? So how do we measure anaerobic effects? Well, we did it with blood lactate, right? So blood lactate is a surrogate marker for acidosis. And what I mean by that is that lactate itself is not the cause of acidosis. It's actually trying to help us buffer out what's happening at the muscle. Um but there were increased um lactate appearances in people who did all the hit in the beginning and the big circuit after and we contributed that to the fact that the circuit itself was so anaerobic in nature. And when you think about hit, when you get those lower intensity bouts, you actually get a chance to remove the acidosis that you create or the lactate that gets created in the process because you're doing a lower intensity bout in between, right? So you We were giving them 90 seconds to walk on the treadmill between their uh, high-intensity runs. Mm -hmm. And um, that gave them time, essentially, what we equated to time of buffering, right? So they got time to buffer out some of the acidosis, which they didn't report it making their circuits any better. Because we did some self-reporting on, okay, how did it make you feel? Did you feel, you know, like, were you enjoying it? Did it make you feel exhausted? All this stuff. And all those markers were relatively the same between the programs. People didn't really say that they felt better doing one or the other. Um, they did say that they found the implementing of the hit in between as more enjoyable and more interesting, probably because not too many people actually do that as it is, <laughs> right? So they're used to doing all their hit in the beginning and then doing the circuit after, because mm-hmm. that's how we usually build in that kind of stuff. So um, it, it was pretty interesting findings in that regard. Um, so I think that doing more research on that and seeing if there is any kind of um training attitude. So this was a a acute response study. We we're just looking at the the dem like what was happening, what were the characteristics immediately after the exercise program? Um so I think implementing that into a training program, maybe six, eight weeks and seeing how people respond um would be a good way of doing it. Um there are some researchers out in um, Spain and Italy that do uh, this rest-pause circuit training. Have you heard of that before? Uh, essentially what they do is they have them do six reps. of the, So they're still trying to get 10 total repetitions, mm-hmm. but they have them do six reps to fatigue at a weight that takes them to fatigue. They increase the weight, and then they have them do two more reps. Then they pause, they increase the weight again, and have them to, do two more reps so they get to ten repetitions of the exercise, but the weight just continues to increase as they do it, um, and they've seen some pretty interesting results with that type of training. Um, I but uh, I think they I think they need to do more on it. And it, it doesn't seem like it, it seems realistic when you have a trainer who's there to change the weight for the yeah. client. But if someone was to be implementing that on their own and you know trying to accomplish that on their own, it, it seems pretty cumbersome yeah. to be able to accomplish that. <laughs> Uh, in a single session. So while the results of the studies have been interesting, I think the whole idea of translational science, right? Getting it to actually work in the real world Mm -hmm. may not be there quite yet, but it is an interesting idea.
0: Really fascinating. Really. Both of those, uh, which you shared were very, very fascinating and items for trainers to think about, uh, which I really like, and I really like you sharing those. So really good stuff there. So as we get to the podcast takeaways, and we're going to try this again, as I mentioned a little earlier, um, Dr. Nunez, he is a PhD, PhD level fitness professional as a master's, as a, a bachelor's of science in kinesiology as well. So with all that, it takes time. It takes growth within the industry. And in our last episode, we started the talking about, I say, different lies within the fitness industry. And really, this is just advice from the point of the guest on the episode. And so Dr. Nunez in your experience so far and the way that in the path that you've gone and you can share a lot of that stuff, please feel free. What are three lies that you have uncovered about the fitness industry?
1: So three lies that I've uncovered about the fitness industry. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, when I think about that question, it, it makes me wonder if I'm coming at it from more of a professional point of view, like what makes a good personal trainer, Mm -hmm. or if I should come at it from more of a scientific point of view in terms of, okay, what have you heard in the weight room that's not necessarily true? How would you like me to come at it?
0: (laughs) Maybe one of each and then one of your choice.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. So the biggest lie that I like to say in class, because I teach exercise physiology at Metropolitan State University of Denver, and we, we have a whole section on bioenergetics.
2: Mm.
1: And we ta- I, I kind of got into this <laughs> when I was talking about my research study. And the idea of lactic acid, there right? You know. So I'm sure everyone has heard, oh, man, I got <laughs> all this lactic acid in my muscle, and it's really making me sore, right? So one, lactic acid only appears in the body in very, very minuscule amounts. And it actually comes from the digestion of dairy. It's not really a form. And it comes from our heart musculature as well but it's not really formed in muscle all that much. Um, what we form in our muscle is called lactate, um, which is actually a stable form of the molecule, um, meaning that it's not causing any direct acidosis within our system. So, and and it's certainly not gonna be there 24 hours and 48 hours later. So it's not the cause of the muscle soreness. Um, and uh, the formation of it is is really an attempt to help buffer our system as opposed to actually cause acidosis within our system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one big thing that I always tell my students and their minds are just blown when I, I tell them that because they hear it <laughs> so much in the weight room, right?
0: I, I will admit that that's almost an automatic um, d- dismissal in my mind when somebody says that, if they're giving a presentation or they're tweeting or anything like that, and they're saying lactic acid, I just keep moving, keep moving on. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly yeah um, so the next one, let's go with the professional side. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a misconception. I would just say that people should realize that a lot of what makes a very good personal trainer, other than the fact that they have knowledge in the area, is is really just being a very good marketer of what you're selling and mm-hmm. and how you're selling it, right? So like, for me, I would never consider myself a great business person. But I like, I, I really enjoy what I teach and I really enjoy what I'm selling people. And that's the idea of health and wellness, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can show that you are really bought into the industry and you're really bought into the the ideas of health and wellness and, and your clients see that and people who, and, and you know, when you're in a weight room, you're never alone. There are people watching you and watching yep. how you interact with your clients. So when you're showing joy and, and engagement and excitement for what you're doing, People notice that and your clients notice that and it, and it makes them want to come back and it makes people want to be a part of it, right? So they want to be a part of the enjoyment and the excitement and they want to know what you're teaching and what you have to say about certain things. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's a, a really big thing for trainers to learn and, and to be aware of, especially when they're, when they're first getting started is that how you, how you display your mannerisms is, it goes a long way. How people perceive you, and if they're going to want to continue to work with you as a trainer.
0: Really great point. Really great point right there.
1: Um, and then the last part. Hmm. One more lie. <laughs> um. I think one of the bigger, and, and this goes back to resistance training, has to do with hypertrophy, right, and hypertrophy muscle growth. So um, the whole misconception that you have to lift heavy weights in order to see increases in muscle size. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, I think there's enough research out there that, and it's getting more and more into um, the industry that that's a misconception, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to lift heavy to increase your size. Um, what you do to increase size really is to increase volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to get in enough volume to see the damage that you want to see. And when we say damage, we're talking about healthy, normal damage to the muscle belly, mm-hmm. right? We're not talking about overuse and repetitive use Damage that leads to something like rhabdomyolysis, right, where you mm-hmm. see uh, bloodborne pathogen in the in the urine or something like that. So we're talking about just your normal inherent damage with training that leads to a repair process, right? And that repair process allows for the muscle to grow because it's a, it's essentially a response that hey, when I do that again, I'm not going to get as damaged as I did the last time. And and your body, in order to actually repair that damage, needs to be properly nourished to get there. So you don't actually see improvements in muscle size directly from the program as much as it is a an an added effect from you getting in the proper nutrition right so you're making sure to eat enough eat enough protein eat enough carbs taking enough water um, get enough rest so that your body actually is given the nutrients and time it needs to increase that size
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that that's such a great point for new trainers to think about and the example that I usually give is when talking about bodybuilders, you think about what they do in the weight room and how they look. A lot of bodybuilders, I mean, there are bodybuilders that do heavyweight, they do, you know, amazing things in the gym, but there are a lot of them that just do isolated work, low rep or sorry, low weight and high repetitions because they're trying not to get injured so they can continue to be in the gym and utilize all the things that you just pointed out there. But yet people think, oh, he's big. He must be super strong. He must be lifting big weights. No, he's not. And so yeah, as a trainer, understanding that, that you just don't always have to lift heavy. You don't always have to throw as much weight at your client. There's different ways that you can program things. And you can keep all the, the, almost the, all the items we talked about in today's episode. I'll keep them coming back. Keep them healthy. Keep them exercising more frequently. All the items that I'll say keep you training clients more, keep you earning more money, which is important. I think that that's such a crucial thing for trainers to think about. So uh, really good points there. Uh, I thought that all of them were great. And in terms of things that every trainer will will literally uncover while being in the industry within probably the first three months. And so really good stuff there. Dr. Nunez, um, do you have any upcoming events? I know that at the time of recording this, and we, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, but uh, do you have any upcoming events where personal trainers can uh, see you speak?
1: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I was supposed to be doing a, a few different presentations this year, especially, um, specifically during this this uh, few months. And mm-hmm. as we all know, a lot of those things have been canceled. So yeah. there's nothing on the docket for this year, Um at the moment, uh, I'll probably be at ACSM Health and Fitness Summit next year mm-hmm. uh, presenting, and I'm hoping to be at um, IDEA Personal Trainer Institute as well as IDEA World Fitness Convention next year, um, so keep an eye out for that. If um, if you're interested in all this stuff, I'll, I'll be talking about pretty much the same exact things um, and hopefully having some more research uh, that's been published more recently uh, to talk about. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'll just be I'll just be teaching.
0: I'll be That's teaching my stuff. classes. Good stuff. And uh, can you share your social media information for the the listeners?
1: Um, I don't really have any. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm probably the the youngest researcher to not have any kind of uh, Twitter sphere or Instagram following for <laughs> for that specific uh, information. But if you want to get at me on LinkedIn, I have a LinkedIn. So if you if you just look me up. Um, Tony Nunez uh, at Metropolitan State University of Denver Um, you should be able to find my LinkedIn profile if you wanted to get in contact with
0: me perfect perfect Dr. Nunez thank you for coming on sharing really good information that people can apply immediately that's the big thing for this podcast is really sharing those tidbits information that trainers can apply immediately go with their clients start using this information it's really great stuff thank you for coming on
1: yeah no problem you're welcome My, my pleasure